0: In that. I am Jonathan Miller. My, uh, I'm the husband of the one that opened us with the call to worship. Uh, Anna Miller, she is uh, our volunteer children's director, but she is a full-time teacher by trade. And that was Jameson, our son, that was with her. We got another one, Judah, somewhere. But uh, anyways, so I co-lead alongside of Kyle, and we are glad that you would choose to gather with us to worship this morning and to be a part of our service as we continue to center on Sunday mornings around the season of Lent. And so, and not just Sunday mornings, but collectively as a people, uh, we've invited you as a community to sort of journey through the Lenten lands with us. And we've done that by fasting together and, and different things. And so if you have questions about that or you wanna know more, get resources, we'd be glad to connect with you. But for Sunday mornings, we're continuing through the lectionary passages that have been used for thousands of years by the church at large, And millions of Christians will gather this Sunday together to hear these uh, scripture passages read. And so we're going to find ourselves in Genesis 15 this morning. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there or a phone, or you can follow along on the screen as well. But I'm going to read this passage for us, and then we'll move into our time of our sermon. It says, Genesis 15, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my state is a of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood, will be your heir. He took them outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take, Possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so Genesis 15, up top, maybe seems weird. Why are we talking about birds being cut in half? All of these things. Pots passing from the sky, darkness, clouds. Uh, I feel like Batman in the Lego movie. Darkness. Uh, This covenant in Genesis 15 is like the covenant of the Old Testament it is the one you're going to see referenced multiple times in the Old Testament it is the one that the people of God of Israel are going to go back to and reference again and again covenants play a very important part of what is happening in the people of God this matters because what we are going to see and what is going to develop again and again is that Yahweh the God of Israel is the God that comes to be and to dwell among his people and to be in relationship with them. And yet, what we see is that the people of God are the ones that consistently fail over and over again. So let's pull out for just a second and go big context picture here. The book of Genesis is largely the story of how the people of God become who they are. You end up all the way there in uh, slavery and Exodus, right? And then... The, Moses is going to lead him out, and that's later. Genesis is kind of the beginning, beginning. Genesis 1 through 11 is separate, but we know it uh, very well. It's the Garden of Eden and the Noah story primarily. Those two things, what happens here is immediately you start to see covenants. There's this beautiful thing that takes place in Genesis 1 and 2 there is a story and a myth and a poem that is told, that is a, a recalled about how God created humanity and he placed amongst them the ability to have life and life to its fullest. And what you see in the garden is that a God that gives the people that he has created a, like an ability to choose. And in the garden, he is going to create two trees, And in some ways, this serves as their ability to choose whether or not they're going to follow God. There's the tree of life, which is the one that will give them abundant life, full life, life to the way that God intended them to be. And God has given it to them and he says to them to eat of this tree and to eat of all of the trees, to partake in the abundance and the goodness that I have placed you in and to partake and to participate in all of the good things that I have created and have allowed you to have so that you will know that I am your God and that I long for you to enjoy life. And next to that, there is also on the way to the tree of life, they pass the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, knowledge, or the tree of good and bad, the tree of death. He says this is the one tree you can't eat of. We've talked about this before on Sunday mornings here. What we, what we know about this tree in many ways is not that God did not want his people to know what good was and what bad was. He wasn't holding out on them. It was never the intention in the garden that God would hold out on his people and like keep something back from them. He longed for them to know and have the knowledge of what was right and what was good. The two trees represented a choice for humanity and for creation of whether or not they would trust what God's definition of good and bad was, or if they would attempt to reach out and take for themselves what they thought should be considered good and what should be considered bad. So they take and they eat then instead of the tree of good and bad. And the rest of the story of Scripture and the people of God is one then of this uh, choice laid out before humanity. This, this opportunity before them to reach out at the trees of testing, if you will. And, and there's this beautiful language in the Hebrew that as they actually go out from there, that they, the humans themselves, the dust people, become the people of testing, the trees of testing, and they will be able to choose whether or not they will trust that God is who he says he is. And that his definition of good and evil and his desire for the people of God is what he says it is. Or if they will choose for their own their understanding of good and evil. And if they will then define what they think is good and what they think is right. Honestly, if you understand this really well, all of scripture, one, makes more sense. And so do human beings. And so will yourself. If you can grasp hold of that most of life is us attempting To reach out and to grasp hold of something and to define for ourselves what we think is good and right. And so these trees become a prominent image through scripture. And and the image of trees will be an image that you see repeated again and again throughout scripture. Because what we're going to see is from Genesis 3 on, from the fall in Genesis 3 until the end of Revelation... It is a story and a narrative of a God that longs to restore things back to the way they were. And so much of Genesis is going to repeat this pattern in the story. And there's going to be all of these little words that are like buzzwords and signposts and keys, like holding points, clip-in points if you're a climber, that are going to be like, hey, if you fall back from this, you know like this is all going back to this thing. If you're a musician, think of an opening line of a symphony. And you hear all the notes and the melodies that are going to kind of be played at the beginning. And then it's going to repeat, and there's going to be all these movements. I was just explaining this to our kids the other day. They've been really into wanting to listen to soundtracks. They're four and two, and they want to listen to the the soundtracks from their movies. And they'll be like, hey, what part is this song from? Or or, what part of the movie is this song at? And I'll tell them because I look at the thing and I cheat because I don't know. And I'm like, uh, it says here this is the the superhero theme or whatever it is because it's mostly around Spider-Man and uh, Hulk and Captain America. And then they'll be like, well, but that sounds like this song. And I'm like, yeah, 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 that's the way this works. There's these notes. There's this music that happens in the opening credits. And then you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, you know when Captain America is about to show up on the scene because there's a certain set of notes. You know when Darth Vader is coming because there's a certain set of notes. There's a melody that starts to be played, even if it isn't the Imperial Death March being played. But there are sounds. And this is what scripture is going to do. This is what the Old Testament is doing. There's this thing that is played in Genesis 1 and 2. There's this beautiful narrative that is set. And there's going to be all through scripture, there are movements that are hearkening us back to this that are seeing that this is what God intends, is for us to be found in his garden of abundance and to be in relationship with us, where he defines what is good and is right, and we are called to live in under that. And there is also going to be the minor key notes played, right? That you see the tree and the choice of good and evil, gods of our own making, trying to make ourselves into gods. And this is going to be repeated through scripture. You see it immediately, Genesis 1-3, through you get it, go through it, Noah. Noah comes, Genesis 6. And what you see is that there is this opportunity for him to create this tree of life in the ark. And I say it's an opportunity to create a tree of life because in the Hebrew the same word is being used when it talked about the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. What the boat is made out of is the same word that's being used. And they're being invited to come in to this shelter of this tree where life will be preserved. And you think, obviously, this is a good thing. We're going to go back. It's going to be like it was supposed to. God's going to reset everything. No sooner than they get off the boat, Noah chooses to pull from the vine and drink wine and depart from what God had called him to. The word there for vine, same word that's being used for the boat, same word that's being used for the trees in the garden. It is always these two trees that are in competing like contrast with each other. And so then this theme is going to continue. So you go from Noah. Noah chooses the wrong thing. So we get Abram. Genesis 12, we meet him, and we're given this promise. And undergirding all of these promises, fun theological word here for you, is the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. And it is the promise in Genesis 3 that the serpent will be crushed under the seed of her offspring. That there is something that will be planted, that will grow, that will crush the, offspring's, the serpent's head. And each of these promises are hearkening back to that first promise. And so we see Noah, and then we get to Abram. And Abram shows up on the scene, and what he is told is that he will lead this nation. and There's all this beautiful stuff in 12 and 13 and 14 where he's always meeting God at trees on high places. And it is a resetting and a recreating of Eden. This is what God longs to do in and among his people, is to return them back to the abundance and to the goodness that he promised and intended them to have. And he wants them to trust and to know And to see that He actually is who He says He is. And that He is good to to fulfill the promises that He has given them. But there's a pattern. There's provision from God. There's an abundance. There's a promise that He invites them into it. And then there's failure. And then from that failure, there is further pursuit by God to repeat the pattern. To give them provision once again, as they settle into the provisions that he has given them, he will promise them something, and they will fail, and then he's going to repeat. And we talked a lot about this last week in our first Sunday, as we talked about the we were in Exodus, and we were talking about the this, the people of God wandered through the desert, that they found themselves repeatedly in this place and in this moment where they were always failing. And even in Exodus, right, we talked about this, that Moses knew as he's about to usher these people into the promised land, he immediately is like, but you're not going to be able to do it. I've been with you for 40 years, and we have been the people that have been recalling and retelling of how we fall short of this. And it's pointing to something. It's pointing to the one that can and ultimately will do what they are supposed to in Jesus Christ. And so we meet abram in this moment he's been told that he will be the father of a nation that he will be the one that will allow this people of god to become who they're meant to be and to allow heaven to come onto earth as it was intended to be and to allow and you start getting into jerusalem and the tents and all the things that are supposed to come that we're pointing to later like it's all a recreation of the garden. It's all garden imagery. It is all bringing us back to Eden where God's abundance is inviting us into rest and inviting us into trust, inviting us into this place where we are allowed to just like be and to exist and to be like the fulfillment of what God intended us to be. And so Abram is given this promise and things have happened and he's been wandering through the desert and in chapter 13, There's a, he splits with his brother-in-law, and it's a, actually a nice way to understand and see biblical uh, conflict played out well. And they go their separate directions, and Lot gets the good land, and Abram gets the bad land, and God says, trust me, I know it feels like this isn't going to work out for you. I know it feels like this isn't the best place for you to be, but trust me, I'm going to Fulfill the promises that I've given to you. And in chapter 15, we kind of meet the culmination of Abram's frustration. He's old in age at this point. He's saying that there's no way. There's no way, God, that you can actually do the thing that you said you would do. My offspring is a servant. And there's place in this for the ancient Near East that if you didn't have a boy... Unfortunately, women weren't allowed to inherit most of what we were given passed down through families. So if you didn't have a boy of your own, you could adopt a boy from a a connection somehow and allow them to become the inheritor of what you own. And he's like, but I, I know that's not what you intend for me. I know that is not what you long for me. I know that is not what the promise that you had for me, that my servant from Damascus would be the one that is my inheritance. So there's this moment where God brings Abram out. First part of this, verses, I guess it's like one through seven. There's a little bit of a break, and then, and then it's the next day, just so if you want to follow the narrative a little bit. But he ends the nighttime. He brings him out. And he says, Look up at the sky, look at the stars, count them if you can. This is what I promise you will be your offspring. And Abram says, how? How can that be? There's no way. And God says, trust me and promise. And so what appears is that Abram does. And then the weird darkness language and where we're going through all of that, and we're seeing this tension of like, why are we talking? And we skipped over some verses because it gets even darker. It's, a, it's this play in Genesis that we will know that the full fulfillment of what God is promising Abram will come, but it will come after the darkness. It will come after the difficulty. It will come after the turmoil when all seems lost and when all seems gone. And So Abram seems to trust Yahweh in this moment. He offers the sacrifices. Yahweh comes, meets him where he is. He says, okay, And if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that Abram is faced with a decision to trust God's goodness or to reach out and to take and define what he thinks it should be. You know, the story of Abram, if you're familiar with Genesis, and he chooses instead of allowing God to fulfill the promise through him and his wife, he sleeps with his wife's servant and God says, no, that's not it. That's not the promise that I told you. Continue to believe. And eventually, he has the child that God has promised him. Genesis 26, we move on and we see the development of that. That's kind of the next chunk of the Genesis narrative. In all of this, what we see more than anything else is a God that longs for his people to know that he is good. A God that longs to dwell and to be among his people. And it seems to be that it is not perfection, or it is not our ability to do the thing that God has asked us to do. It is not our ability to hold up our end of the covenant, our end of the law, our end of the bargain. But it is all God's pursuit of his people. The reason that everyone in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament as they write and they talk and they process are going to go back to Genesis 15 over the covenant. The next big covenant you see in the story of the people of God is at Mount Sinai. Ten Commandments all of this stuff that's the uh, kind of the next big one the reason they're going to hold to genesis 15 in a different kind of way than they're going to hold to the covenant of mount sinai is because in genesis 15 what you see is a covenant of grace and of mercy there is no law given to abram all there is asked of him is to be one who believes in god and so Paul is going to use this in Romans repeatedly, Genesis 15, verse 6. And and Abram believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now quickly, those are your two big, what does it mean to believe and have faith? Because this is where we're going to get our uh, modern day understandings and ideas of what it is to be saved by faith. And it's a way for us to begin to understand what it means that it is then the righteous who inherit the promise and the covenant of God. Quickly, I do, this is my opinion backed by some study, there's different debates on this obviously. I do not think in this moment, in my opinion, that like this was the first time that Abram just all of a sudden like had faith in God. I don't think it was like a, a conversion moment for Abram. I don't think that's what they're talking about here. Because I think uh, functionally, I don't know if that's the way it really works for any of us. I don't know if there is a singular, there are singular moments that we make decisions and declarations. There are singular moments that we write down and say a covenant was made in that moment. But Abram's life is clearly one of faith up until this point. He has trusted God up until this point. And so I do not think that it is something here that is like a, I, I say this language all the time that I use it, it is not a mental assent that all of a sudden, like, everything made enough sense to Abram that he was like, yeah, I get it now. I understand it well enough, I'll trust in you. I think it was another moment and another mark in his journey of following God and being a part of his creation and his world where he said, okay, it's another place where I'm going to, because of what you have done, because of the experiences that I've had, this is another moment where I'm going to give my life over to you because I know you intimately and I'm acquainted with your goodness and your mercy. It has nothing to do with him being able to write a theological defense of who Yahweh is. That is not what it means that he believes. It wasn't like I don't even know if it was a radical one eighty in his life in this moment. It is an example of him giving himself over to and knowing the character of God and saying, I will trust this time as I have previously and will need to again that you will fulfill this thing for me. And God says, that's all I ask of you. And when Abram, as we know from the narrative, doesn't trust, he gets the opportunity where God says, it's me still. Trust me again. Trust me If you're a parent in the room or you work with small children, you know the importance of reminding them that every time you confront them that you are not trying to take the whole world away from them. You're saying, I I want good things for you too. I long to give you good things. I, I want your safety and your protection. In this moment, I'm confronting you. You've gone away and I want to remind you and bring you back to trusting That I know you and I think that that's what Abram and God are doing in this moment. There are these things that are happening. And it is credited to him as righteousness. Meaning that Abram in that moment was reflective of the person living in a certain way that was in accordance and aligned with someone that believes and trusts that God is good. And that Yahweh is who he says he is. I think that's what Genesis 6 is calling us to see. That is what we then are invited into knowing and being and participating in as the people of God today. That we would be a group of people that trust and that know that God is good. And in that, we are not asked to then become or to do something that we can't be. We're not held to some standard, it is not a law or restrictions that are then placed onto us, in that moment what we're invited into is to participate and to rest in God's goodness and His abundance for us. And yet just like the people of the Old Testament and of the New Testament and of the patristic church and the medieval church and the 18th century church, and the 20th century church of our parents, and now us in the 21st century, we too are constantly faced with the opportunity to trust in God being who He says He is, or to reach out and to make for us our own gods, and to define for ourselves what we think is good and right in the world. The difference being for us is that in these moments... Unlike Abram, we have a different knowing and an understanding of what we see fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and he steps in to this covenantal relationship between God and humanity. And I don't see it as something in this moment where God was just fed up the way I get fed up when I walk into their room and I'm like, get out of my way, I'll just pick it up. You're not doing it right. That is not what God is doing. He is not a cosmic, angry father or parent with us. God steps into this moment through the flesh and blood of Jesus. And he says, let me be a new and better Adam. Let me be a new and better Abram or Abraham. Let me be a new and better Moses, a new and better David. One that will allow this covenant relationship between God and humanity to go across all of the earth and that will open it up in such a way that we all get to become participants in this kingdom work that is happening. And I think it is no mistake that the New Testament writers throughout the gospels are going to repeatedly talk about the tree that Jesus dies on. It is a tree at the center of this story that allows us to see and to know God's goodness and his faithfulness. And it is on a tree that we are able to receive abundant life. Now, the narrative with Jesus, as we know, though, is that it is on that tree that he dies. But he doesn't stay planted as a seed into the ground. And in the sovereignty and the goodness and the miraculous wonder of all of creation is that God raises him from the dead... And now, the language that Jesus himself used in the Gospels is that he becomes the branch and we are the vine. He is the tree that grows out of the earth and we become the vine that we get to participate and to reach out and being the parts that extend into the world that allow the garden and allow heaven to come onto earth to grow, and to extend to others the abundant life and the hope that God has for His creation. And so that's what we celebrate every Sunday at Communion. We come and we receive the elements of the body broken for us and the cup poured out for the sins that we commit. And it's like Lent and in our wandering and in our own futility, and in our own failure, we recognize that we, just like the people of the Old Testament, regularly fail to choose correctly. That we regularly fail to do the thing that we know that we need to do, to live in and to trust God. To allow His abundance to overwhelm us. To participate in all of the things that he longs for us to participate. To enjoy all of the things that he longs for us to enjoy. To have all of the things that he longs for us to have. And instead we focus on the thing that we think we can't have or the thing that we think that we want. And just like the people of the Old Testament and of the New Testament, we repeatedly choose for ourselves gods of our own making and we choose death. We choose our own knowledge, our own way of being, instead of allowing what Christ did on the cross to totally and radically transform us into a new way of being and existing. Because here is the reality as we come to the table and the band comes back up. The truth of this moment is to participate and live into this new way of being and this tree of life and what we celebrate in Lent and in the wilderness. The church together is that this is a path of death. We cannot escape the path that Jesus took. To participate and to be a part of the life of the kingdom is to die to ourselves. And as I love to often quote from David Foster Wallace, he says, You can choose to die one death. Or you can choose to die thousands of deaths over over and over again until they lay you in the ground. And that is the invitation of the cross. To choose the death of Jesus and to die to ourselves. It's what we celebrate in baptism. If you have been baptized or would long to be baptized, we celebrate this laying to death the old way of being. We celebrate laying to death the desire for us to choose our own good and our own evil and to make for us our own gods. And we are raised to life in the life of Jesus. And we participate in that kingdom. And we live by His rules and under His reign. And we give ourselves over to that kind of freedom. The freedom to walk away from what we think is good and to live into the glorious freedom of Jesus Christ. In his life and his kingdom. So as the band plays, come, take a piece of the bread and the cup, hold on to those elements, and after this next song, I'll come up and I'll lead us in the receiving of those elements. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are good. God, I ask and pray in this moment that I could be reminded and that I would know, Father. That I would know that you really are who you say you are. That you long to be near to me. That you long to be um, in relationship with me. And that there is uh, nothing that I need to do. God, allow me to trust in your goodness. Allow me to trust that you have good things for me. That you have an abundance of good things for me. That you have life in its fullest for me. As we come and as we receive these elements, God, I ask and pray that you would take them and that you would change something in us and that you would do something different in us as we choose to die to ourselves and to live life in you, God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.